Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you, Paul, again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Know your audience. This is something that anybody involved in advertising or publicity or public speaking has had drilled into their heads. Know your audience. Know the people to whom you are addressing your particular message. And it's why being a guest preacher is so difficult because you're getting up in front of a bunch of people to proclaim to them God's word, but you really don't know them. It's also why preaching to a congregation of do know becomes a little bit easier over time because you get to know your audience. Now, churches, especially Protestants, truly get swept up in this and take it sort of to a level that is beyond, that is maybe a little bit too far. Many a missionary has been asked, have you done your demographic research? Many Western mission developers are obsessed with this and have whole books of statistics for the area in which they're hoping to plant a church. We're often asked at conferences, who is the target demographic for your particular evangelism program? Are you trying to reach young immigrant single moms who like dogs and coffee, for example? Or maybe even more specific than that. Other missionaries who are history buffs say you can't even begin to proclaim the gospel to a particular people unless you've read at least 100 pages on the history of that place and that society before you open up your mouth and say anything about Jesus the Christ. Now, we don't want to get lost in all of this. I like demographics as much as the next person. I certainly have lots of history books on my shelf back here behind the virtual backdrop. And it is important to know those things. But at the same time, there is one gospel and one message that is given even to young immigrant single moms who like dogs and coffee. We'll talk a little bit more about that one message and remind ourselves of that gospel a little bit later. But our first reading from Acts does address the question, does your audience matter? And to a certain extent, the answer is yes. Yes, it does. That it is important to know to whom you are speaking the message of salvation in Jesus. Now, if I could back us up a few weeks, or actually fast forward a couple of weeks, because Acts chapter 2 is slotted into a whole bunch of Sundays between Easter and Holy Trinity Sunday, and, and get us back to the overall message of all of Acts chapter 2, you'll see that Peter's great Pentecost sermon is addressed to Jews. It's addressed to people who have gathered from every corner of the earth, that big, long list of very hard-to-pronounce names, into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so as Peter proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, think about the kinds of illustrations he uses. But Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people, namely the 
other disciples, are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and immediately begins his sermon with a long quotation from the Old Testament. Now, real quick, real quick, tell me what you know about the prophet Joel. In what time period did he live? What were the major themes of his prophecies? What was the conclusion of everything that the Lord spoke through him? I'm guessing that unless you've spent an awful lot of time in in-depth Bible study, you may not have answers to those questions right on the tip of your tongue. Joel is, after all, considered one of the minor prophets, not a go-to book for study. Peter then follows that up in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, by going on and saying, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Now again, real quick, who's David again? Might be a little easier to answer that one. You might remember Sunday school. You remember King David, responsible for Israel, first true king after Saul, who turned out to be such a failure. But beyond that, and outside of Christian circles, if you just name-dropped David in the middle of a conversation, you might be thinking of a brand of cookies or some other thing. Would you immediately make the connection that it's the king of Israel? Now, I could go on. But, but here's the point. Peter was preaching to Jews gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover. He knew his audience. He knew the kinds of people that he was talking to and the kind of thinking going on in their head. And he could relate the law of God to them. He could relate their own sinful condition to Jesus because he knew the kinds of people they were and the kinds of illustrations that would immediately connect. Now that brings us to our first reading for today. Acts chapter 17, 15 chapters further down the road, and we're no longer in Jerusalem. We're, we're not in the Holy Land anymore. Paul finds himself in the capital of Greek philosophy, Athens itself. Now, what are his illustrations? How does he try to connect with this group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, the Areopagus, which is both a place, but it could also just be the group of people, the council of great thinkers in Athens. It was known by the same name. We know that Paul's angry. His spirit is torn up within him, having seen all of these idols and altars around the city. We all know what it's like to be angry. We know what it's like to be frustrated when we see things that need to change. But despite being angry, Paul doesn't start by saying, you dumb dumb heads, how can you be doing this? He goes like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. But Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an, also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on to quote one of their own prophet poets and Epimenides of Crete, whom you probably don't know much about either. Yet God is not actually far from each one of us, for, and this is the quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul's not preaching to Jews. He can't start quoting from Joel or name-dropping David or Solomon and assume that they have any idea what he's talking about. And so he uses their own poets their own philosophers, their own cultural condition to proclaim their problem with God, the situation that they're in, the moral quandary in which all people find themselves, but specifically the people of Athens. When we were studying engineering back at the University of Waterloo, we were told that 90% of the solution is defining the problem. Once you've truly clarified what the issue is or what the problem is, finding the solution becomes much easier. And in some ways, knowing your audience is exactly that. If we can't connect with the problems and issues at stake in the people with whom we're sharing the gospel, why will they care about our answer? How will they even be able to connect that answer to where they are right now? Now, the reality is that Paul and Peter have the same answer. Never in the book of Acts is the gospel sort of broken up into different kind of things to say about Jesus. It's always the same message. So at the end of Peter's great sermon, he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Therefore, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is the gospel. This is the good news. Peter, or Paul, in Acts chapter 17 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Of this he has given assurance to all by raising that man, Jesus, who's always name-dropped from the dead. That's the Easter gospel. That Christ came for the forgiveness of sins, that he's been announced as both Lord and Christ by his resurrection, and we and all people are to come to him for life. And that gospel never changes. It's not like if we don't get the audience right, somehow the gospel isn't for them. The gospel is always the same. What does change based on the audience is the unpacking of the law. Understanding sin for this particular culture, because sin is also one of those words that we throw around very easily within the Christian church, but outside of these virtual walls, what do people think of that word? 
What was the sin for the Jews who were gathered there listening to those 11 apostles speak in all of their different languages? What was the sin for the people of Athens? How did each of them understand this having missed the mark, which is what the word sin really means in the Old Testament? This having tried to reach for God and missed. Why did they need a Christ? What was the problem? Christ Jesus is always the solution. But in knowing our audience, we will know how to proclaim Christ's crucifixion and resurrection for eternal life to them. So the question for each and every one of us this morning now is, to whom are we preaching? What is our audience? Yes, we could go down to Laurier and find some Hasidic Jews, and, and we could name drop Joel and name drop David, and they would totally be with us. We could perhaps even just use the Acts chapter 2 sermon of Peter directly with them. They'd probably get it. They would come to faith if the Holy Spirit were to stir them up, but the law they would totally understand. If indeed, Christians, what you're saying is correct, then yes, we should repent and come to Jesus. But what about non-Hasidic Jews? What about the jaded Quebecois who's rejected this institution that they call church? How do we proclaim sin to them? What about the spiritual but not religious person who worships still at the altar of the unknown god or gods or goddesses? How do we connect with them? What about the people in Park Extension who are trapped in religious systems that leave God's grace ever further away, unattainable, and instead are trapped trying to reach out to the divine or God or eternity through their own works and their own efforts? What about the people who right now are just trying to make ends meet in the midst of an economic and health disaster? We're trying to hold things together at home trying to put food on the table, keep a roof over their heads. What about the people who are ever more buried in depression and anxiety and worry and concern? Ascension. We often talk about ministry to immigrants and refugees. What do we know about the immigrants and refugees around our building that we are trying to bring the gospel to? It is important to know your audience so that we can proclaim the problem, what sin means in their context. But it's also critical that we know the gospel. We can't just let the word gospel be one of those unspoken assumptions that we assume that everybody knows what that word means. What do we mean when we say that we are the good news place? What is the good news that we are sharing with people? Peter in his epistle, our reading for today said that in our Christ, we ought to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What is the reason for the hope that is in you? What are your problems? What is your understanding of sin? such that you might be able to give people the reason why you have come to Christ and known him as the one who has forgiven 
that missing of the mark and restored you to God and given you the promise of eternal life through his crucifixion and his resurrection and his ascension. I mentioned that I would reflect just quickly on our sermon hymn. Deb said, boy, we're really pulling out the stops and all the hymns that we probably never dare do if we were here in this space. And that's true. These are some of my favorites. And this last one that we did uh, right before the sermon in particular, our fatal will to equal thee, our rebel will wrought death and night. We seized and used in prideful spite thy wondrous gift of liberty. We housed us in this house of doom where death had royal scope and room until thy servant, Prince of Peace, reached all its walls for our release. Now that might not be your definition of sin. That not, might not be where you, as the audience this morning, are coming from. But let me just give you one idea of the kind of person for whom this hymn was written. We all know about Greta Thunberg. We've seen her name in abundant press releases, girl that took a sailboat to New York City, convincing us all to reduce our carbon footprint. If you've dug into her story a little bit, it is a fascinating one, especially hits close to home for, for Deb and I, our family. Greta was told from a very young age, back in Scandinavia, that the world was in very bad shape. From the time she was eight years old, she was being told that the air was poisoned and that the whole earth was becoming a hall of death. That we as human beings had used our liberty not to bring love to others in her view, but out of prideful spite. Because of that message, the bad news, because of what she was hearing continually around her, she was drinking dark despair. And she drank it so deeply that she became depressed and withdrawn and frankly, near death herself, having lost dozens of pounds in weight because she wouldn't eat. So panicked was she about what was happening to the planet from what she was being told in school. Now, how do we bring Jesus to her? How do we bring Christ into her situation? We could, as the Church of Sweden no doubt would say, simply announce that Jesus was crucified for the forgiveness of sins. But what is sin? What is needs to be forgiven? Well, in her context, the hymn answers it. Thou camest to our hall of death, O Christ, to breathe our poisoned air, to drink for us the dark despair that strangled our reluctant breath. How beautiful the feet that trod the road that leads us back to God. How beautiful the feet that ran to bring the great good news to man. In Greta's case, she needs to hear that God is well aware of what is happening to his planet, to his creation, and has been aware ever since the fall of the damage that we have done to it. But the solution is not our hard work. It's not anything we can do because anything we even try or attempt is ultimately going to fail. The solution is Christ. The solution is God incarnating himself in Jesus of Nazareth and taking all of our destructive tendencies into himself that they might be nailed to a cross and done away with forever. And that Easter is the resurrection promise that as we have destroyed creation, so too will God restore it on the last day. So too will God make all things new.
know your audience. It's important to know something about where people are that we might address the sin that is in them that they know of but might not know by that name. But even more important than knowing your audience is knowing the Lord who came to bring the great good news to man. Every man, whether in Jerusalem or in Athens or in Montreal. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.